So welcome again to another Invested Investor podcast. This time we have Neil Garner, who I've only actually met once before, very, very briefly at the opening of the Bradfield Centre in Cambridge. So this will be interesting because I'll be learning a lot from this. So first of all, Neil, tell us a bit about your background. I've got a PhD. I did a, a master's in engineering at York University that was a, a sandwich course. So I was sponsored by British Telecom. So I spent about a year of my activity working across different BT subsidiaries, worked at Martlesham in Ipswich. And I then also ended up, after my master's, doing a PhD sponsored again by BT, which I guess I'd probably call artificial intelligence now. So I was working on neural networks and speech and language processing for detection of speech in heavy noise environments. And this was in the 90s, was it? This was in the 90s, so the mid-90s. And I came away from that environment realising that, you know, modelling human brains and auditory processing and neural networks was pretty difficult to do back then. And actually, I came away thinking that we'd never be able to do the kind of things that are now part of Siri and, you know, Alexa with Amazon. We couldn't because there wasn't the processing. There wasn't the processing power. It was a very, very hard job to do 20 years ago. Okay, and then purely you work for BT for a while because they usually want people to stay on, don't they? It's a little bit ironic, but uh, although I did have offers to work with BT, I ended up working for a consulting organisation and this now uh, was, was called Detica oh, yeah. down in Guildford. And they hired me because they wanted people understood mobile, given the background. Um, so I got involved working with them on what, was sort of like emergency services projects around the early days of sort of Tetra radio, using text messaging to do signalling and alerting and safety critical things, and also then got involved in sort of GPS positioning systems, actually did some fishery protection work and so on around GIS systems. But it's kind of good background in kind of working on, you know, public sector and large sector deployments in safety critical environments. Were you a consultant as in writing reports or were you actually executing and writing code? A little bit of both. So I got the discipline of, you know, requirement specs, business specifications, working on European standardisation projects. But actually where my heart was, was more in building stuff. So we ended up writing software and specifying software in that kind of area. And then you moved on to another consultancy after a few years, didn't you? That was an interesting move. So I can't remember the background of it, but I I thought I wanted to move away from Guildford, maybe back into London. But actually, I ended up getting a job with a company that's based in the same science park back down in Guildford. It's a bit, a bit ironic. But actually, it was a company called Consult Hyperion, which if you look at them, they're a, they're a niche, what I call boutique consultancy business. But what I didn't realise, certainly when I got into the work, is they were working with all the card schemes, global network operators, banks, startups, anything to do with the next generation of transactions, which... You know, when I ended up a job there where I was leading the team that actually built stuff. And this was the early 2000s now? Early 2000s, yes. Yes, OK. How big a company was that? Um, it hovered between sort of 30 to 50 people at different points in, in time with associates and so on. So it's actually a reasonable sized consulting business, but not a, you know, one of the real big, you know, consulting players. It's really useful to see how a small-ish business works when you come on to, when we talk about Proxama. So one of my goals when I joined there was I wanted to be on the board wanted to be a technical director but you know I got into a great position I did end up getting on the board and I did end up sort of running probably almost half of the business anything that was designing and building pioneering and pilot projects all sorts of different sort of mobile payments banking sort of contactless all those sort of activities. What sort of customers for for, not for Visa people like that? Yeah yeah I can talk about this but we did actually build the first contactless payment terminals for American Express and MasterCard 
and we actually wrote the software for the SIM toolkit app used by Vodafone for M-Pesa. My team designed and built and specified a thing called SkyCard, which is a pioneering credit card deployed by Barclays and Sky and MasterCard, right. which you can actually put into the Skybox yeah. to do yeah. banking and payments. Right. Right. There's some pretty interesting sort of projects that we worked on. But the thing for me was, you know, as we built stuff, as any organization that builds software does, we built libraries and tools and capabilities that, you know, in my head, I thought, actually, this is stuff we can productize. Right. So we built more and more things that we thought we can do in a more scalable way. And, you know, no disrespect to the rest of the board because they were totally amazing people that had those relationships and grew the business from where it kind of was. But I think ultimately they loved the consulting, great relationships, great, great positioning. But I was really in my heart, I wanted to start to build products. This is very interesting, actually. We take it a little bit further because we often see companies that are pitching, which are really consultants that they want to productize. And it's very difficult for an angel to do that because they do not necessarily believe that the individual who's been used to selling consulting can actually sell a product. Absolutely. So how did that conversation go within the company? So I think for a while, you know, I had the ability to kind of start to do that kind of thing. We productized a lot of the work we were doing. So you could sell the consultancy, but you could do it more cost-effectively. But I think as time went on, and also because, you know, life plans had changed a little bit because I was based down in Guildford, you know, I'd got a flat in Guildford. My wife had a house in Norfolk. Oh, goodness. You know, we sort of went through as actually, if we're going to have a family, you know, we'd like to have somewhere that was a little bit more rural and made the decision that um, if we're going to set up home, that was going to be based up in, in Norfolk. You'd be mid-30s, early 30s now, would you? Very early 30s. So that was, I think it was about 2004, 2005. So let's talk through that trigger. So A, you're in a position which is obviously paying well, you're really enjoying yourself, you're the director of a board. Yeah. You then become a startup, an entrepreneur. That is a major change. Yes. Talk me through your thought process and how you executed on that. So the way it ended up working was... Probably like many people, four days a week were down with the company, down in Guildford or with customers or in London or wherever. Mm. And then Friday was always a home working day. Yeah. And, you know, I started to do a little bit of digging about the local community and the feasibility of, you know, if I was to do something myself, what would it be? How would it work? Who would I work with? What sort of things would I kind of do? So I, I built a plan up over a, probably about a year of what I think it would look like and what the business would do. Yes. And then, I guess, took the plunge. We moved to a house where I'd got a, a really lovely office. So we'd got a daughter then. And, you know, the whole thing was if I got an office at home, I could work from there. And, you know, that was the base. You obviously jumped out of a fairly reasonable package. Into what? Into nothing? Just savings? or Yeah. The way it worked was I got made a director of, on the board of the company. But actually what that ended up meaning, I bought some shares but because they were shares and I wasn't, you know, earning mega bucks, I ended up taking out a loan to buy the shares. Oh, tut tut. And I was a bit naive at that point. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's great. And then I thought yeah. I've had a bit of a dawning realisation. I've, I've sort of been promoted. I'm now on the board and I've now got less money than I had <laughs> beforehand. Yeah. But what ended up happening was basically when I left, the company bought the shares back. Okay. So I kept the loan. I had the money back from the okay. shares. And that was my seed capital. I had a friend of mine who actually had some work he wanted to do right. that was linked to, I think it was one of the original Innovate UK grants or something. Oh, TSB in those TSB yeah, grants, yeah. where I think we got a £10,000 grant for that project, Yes, which was then going to go to me to help him do that. 
And back then as well, if you remember, the banks were a little bit more liberal with their funding. And again, you know, people say to me, never, ever, ever do it, but I second mortgaged. And, you know, that was the working capital to get the business going. Right. So at this point, you're working from home. There's just you, is there? Or just me. Yeah, fine. Doing what sort of thing? In the initial stage, it was a little bit of consultancy, I suppose, just to kind of get a little bit of capital and relationship going. But the first project we did was for a bank customer I had beforehand mm. that was actually linked to contactless. So we did a, it was a consultancy study that was building things. It was literally proving how fast could contactless work for unattended machines with the idea that actually you could depend on how you could deploy it. You could then work out what the spec was going to be for a bank to deploy terminals into unattended places, depending on what 4G, 3G network authorization performance was to decide whether or not you did basically online authorization or offline authorization with a slightly more expensive device. Yeah, sorry, I was going to compare it with the original Oyster cards in London, but they're wired. Yeah. This is a wireless. So this That's mobile right. comms back end. So they keep you blacklist or whatever yeah. it is in the local device That's so you right. don't have to talk into the cloud yeah. or you don't. Right? Yeah. yeah. And then the other project that we had, that's probably domain anyway, so it was with Sky. We ended up doing a, a sort of a, a fairly unique campaign with Sky for a movie launch, which was basically a smart card that you were sent as a VIP Sky customer. Right. You could put into your Sky box, it was branded for that movie brand, and it unlocked a preview to the movie. The idea that you would then you know, download and watch the movie. Yes. And actually that worked really well. So that, that, that was basically the first sort of projects that we did, you know, for a major UK bank and for Sky. And that sort of really was our first year revenue. So for listeners, this company goes on to the stock market at some point. So this is moving from effectively a one-man band in a house to the stock market. Let's talk through that journey. How long was it between when you formed the company and you listed? So in the end, it was just under eight years went through quite an interesting journey to get there. It had two phases. My first employee was hired about a month in because those two projects I talked about, I needed someone to be building stuff while I was going out and building the relationships and building the business. So so Tim, our first employee, joined and I got an office space in the city of Norwich, which was local. Um, There wasn't very many offices back then. And we built a relationship, and again, it's public domain, with MasterCard. So we ended up, this little company in Norwich, building MasterCards, prototypes and technology for mobile wallets and payments and NFC activities. Not within phones at this point, was it? It was in within phones. Oh, it was in phones. So, so we were working with them actually on the first Nokia prototype phones that had come out that had NFC technology in them. That was actually to be able to do things like marketing, loyalty cards, loyalty transactions and payments. So which year was this then? This was starting in about 2006-07. Okay, before the iPhone even. Well before the iPhone came out. And what was the name of the company? It was called Proxama when it was listed, but it was something else at this point. At the initial phase, and it is a, I mean, a good name or not, I called it Glue for Technologies. So it was a bit of a play on words. So it was like gluing four technologies together, um, which were mobile, the web, interactive TV, and smart cards. So the premise was, you know, or the vision, all of those channels were all coming together. And actually to make those channels come together, you need something that you have on you as a consumer, which then was a smart card that you can take to use across those different channels. And I think the ultimate vision then was that smart card would be in your mobile phone 
that you'd be able to take across the different channels that you communicate with to be the embodiment of you across those different channels. Right. So you're taking on staff every year, taking on a few, or how fast are you growing? So we ended up getting to about 15 people relatively quickly through 2006, 7, 8. And then there was a little bit of a, a bifurcation that happened. They came across us in 2008, no, 7 it was, a company called American Banknote, which is actually what you think it was, is they had a heritage going back to Paul Devere, who was actually the person that did create the first banknotes in America. And they were the company that did print the original banknotes. Right. But they actually ended up being the business that issued smart cards, bank cards, stocks and gilts and so on. And part of their strategy was looking at, you know, some of their bigger competitors that, you know, in some point in the future, cash was going to decline, mm. cards that were being issued were going to end up going into mobile phones. And we were this little company. And they could foresee this, could they? Yeah, they saw that. We had a few conversations yeah. and they decided to invest in the business. And again, myself being a little bit naive back then, I agreed to them taking a majority interest you didn't have a non-exec director or anybody who was advising you at that point? I had a, an advisor, a lovely chap called Nigel Cushion, who was an accountant in Norwich who was working with entrepreneurs that was my best friend and advisor that came with me on the trips to the States to meet with them and you know, help me through the negotiations and discussions. Yes. And we ended up, we valued the business at, I think it was almost two million, had a, about a million pounds invested into the business. And um, that was a good and what decision. what did you use the cash for? So hiring some additional people, expanding the business. We'd got sort of opportunities in the pipeline with some UK network operators, banks, and a couple of retail organisations mm. to do what we're doing. But if you think back into the economic environment back mm. then, mm. 2008, you know, we had potential contracts with about three organisations that all of a sudden were privatised. <laughs> Or sort of, oh, or, yes. or not, yeah, nationalised. Nationalised. And any other organisations <laughs> probably didn't have that much cash, or they were being very That's cautious right. with their cash. Yeah, so, so a lot of our big contracts that we yeah. thought we had suddenly became the sort of things that actually, if you were spending the money on those, those projects were canned almost overnight, which left us in a little bit of an awkward situation. But cash in the bank at this point, so... A little bit of cash in the bank. Lived. You had spent most of the million already, had you? So I don't go into too much detail, but the money was being controlled by my CFO, yes. who was also the CFO of the, the American organisation. Right. So I had regular monthly calls, quite depressing in some ways. Could I pay the bills for the staff and the payroll? In the States? Yeah, to get the money transferred across. Right. So for a period of time, it was literally touch and go on a periodic basis. You know, what's the sales pipeline? What's the opportunities? Yeah. What are you kind of doing? Where is it kind of going? Just to literally gate, are we going to get paid? Which is pretty tough. You learned a lot from that. Hell of a lot. No, cash management, yes. you know, managing you know, shareholders, suppliers, relationships. And, you know, quite often we'd have regular three quarterly meetings, different places around the globe, yes. met lots of different players in different places in Australia and other places who were running different parts of this global business Right, because I was part of their global management team. But that phase must have finished because you went on to better things, didn't you? Yes. So in early 2010, we got to a point where the business was probably going to be folded into the European subsidiary. Of American Banknotes. Yeah, American yep. Banknotes based in France. And we had a bit of a crunch point where I was going to just go, okay, well, that's what be, I'll be an employee. The whole business is going to go all the other way. And I had a bit of a risky conversation. And I, I'd come across 
I talked to a, a number of people actually in Cambridge who were sort of confidants and friends and and so on who'd been you know helping me along in the background or giving a bit of encouragement of you know what can I do and where this is kind of going yes. because I just needed support yeah. and um, I came across a chap who was working for EDA called Trevor Overall. Oh, I know Trevor, yes. And he then introduced yeah. me to a chap that might be able to help me out called Chris Chapman. And me and Chris had a few conversations over a, f- a few drinks and a few few lunches about, you know, maybe if, if I did a deal with you, you could help me. Yeah. And we negotiated an exit. So literally, I, I ended up taking the business on for a very small amount of money and taking all the liabilities and they would then exit. Yeah. And then I'd take the business over and then um, sort of drive it forwards myself. After that point, what proportion of the business did you own? 90%. Okay. And the other 10% was Trevor and Chris no, and people yeah, like so, that? Yeah. So, so, yeah, there was, yeah. there was an agreement with those guys in terms yeah. of what, what their equity was going to be. And then I had an option also to purchase back the final 10% yeah, from sure. the original owners for a fixed fee. Okay. So now you're what? Still 15, 20 people, are you? No. <laughs> Unbeknown to my customers, it was me. Wow. <laughs> During that year. And, you know, so unfortunately, the casualties along the way yes. is I ended up having to make a number of people redundant and they moved on and have done different things right. and so on as well. So it was a cautionary tale is, you know, it, it's not a pleasant journey sometimes. But you must have been so busy. You were supporting a, a customer base of, I don't know how many, 5, 10, 15 customers. So the underlying thing that was happening during that journey was I was negotiating a global deal with Nokia. Right. Which we announced to have our software on Nokia's first NFC mass right. market phones to do marketing and loyalty. Right, okay. Which we ended up closing in the next year in April. Right, excellent. But you've got so many hats at the moment, haven't you? You're supporting customers, you're selling, you've got the finance sorted out, you're writing software, are you? <laughs> I'd got a few people that are kind of freelance helping me out a little bit and there's a couple of subcontractors I was working with. Yes. But literally, there was no people in the company apart from me for about three months right. during the summer of that year. This is 11, is it? This is 2010. And once a few bits of revenue and things kind of came in, I took a decision to rehire my ex-CTO because he was keen to come back in again. He was a bit unhappy doing the whole horrible bit. And I talked to the university about an internship scheme that they had where they were able to fund, I think it's about 60% of the salary of some fantastic interns. Yes, yeah. So I then hired three interns. One was an amazing designer. Another one was an amazing software developer. And another lady was an amazing sort of general office admin, you know, well done. extra yeah. pair of hands. Yeah, yeah. And that was my team in September, October of that year. Right. And having won the Nokia contract as that, well. That happened a little bit further oh, down, down 20, the line. Yeah, um, but the thing that we were still working on is we had a project going on in collaboration with a few partners that was actually the first prepaid mobile contactless wallet solution right. that we, we were just finalising and we ended up launching, I think it was end of that year or the next year, there was actually world's first mobile contactless payment where it was reloadable right. that you can actually kind of use as a, as a product. And we we're just finishing that off. And then when did you float? Which year? 2013. So we've got now another couple of years where you're growing the business back up again. Yes. Okay. So fantastic. Chris came on board as the, the CFO. He was helping me through that journey. We were looking for angels and other people to kind of invest. And there was a chap called Gavin who I knew from the earlier days and many years ago 
who was um, involved in a business called um, Data Cash that was sold to MasterCard for about half a billion. Okay, right. So he made a reasonable amount of money out of that. And he'd been interested in what I was sort of doing. We had a bit of a chat. I showed him our mobile phone that I could actually pay for his drinks with in the the restaurant in 2010 where you'd probably get shot for trying to buy something with a mobile you know <laughs> let, let alone you're dodgy. the first person to ever use a contactless card at my terminal but you've yeah. now just turned up with a mobile phone mm. and bought something in my outlet and when he looked at that and said that's amazing i like that and then he invested right so he became our first proper angel investor and what proportion of the company did he buy about 10 percent. okay yeah so you know i was i was still 90 percent ish owner of the business and you know I got a bit of money coming into the business then as well a bit of extra working capital and then over the next three years we went through a a number of sort of angel rounds and you know he also introduced me to a fantastic chap called Miles Quitman who was a global adventurer been traveling around the Antarctic broke a few world records and and so on he's a really good solid commercial chap we got on really well and he came on board as a sort of um, commercial director stroke MD. And we then built the business sort of together. You know, we built relationships. And these are all public domain things, but yeah. with people like Barclay Card, yeah. we were partner of Barclay Card, deep relationships with MasterCard, the network operators and so on. And then before we listed, where we thought we were in a fantastic position was we had deals with BlackBerry, who were a big player back mm. in sort of, mm. still, still back, back then they were, with the joint venture of US network operators to be providing software into their mobile wallet. And we had the deal with the joint venture of the UK network operators to provide their wallet software as an entity called Weave. Right, okay. So because we had this contract, particularly in the UK, with the joint venture of the UK network operators, which we believed, if you can take that relationship with the, you know, the Vodafone, the O2, EE, mm. and you can exploit that here in the UK... Yes then we could then take that same capability. Oh, Bang- and Do you know Bango that. here in Cambridge? No, Mobile right, Bango, yeah. sort of... Um, yeah, different, yeah. not competitive, but similar sort of thing, just growing out by building in some networks and getting go Definitely. global. So we had software that was being used by banks and network operators right. to kind of make the whole thing kind of work. So you could literally get a bank card into a mobile phone and then use it to do payments. And we're also kind of building stuff around loyalty and redemption. And As all I do with my Apple Watch, but this is uh, absolutely. six years on. Absolutely. Yeah. When we decided to list, because we got that, we thought, well, we're in a really good position here, you know, and we talked to all the various brokers and the nomads, and we, we ended up rever- reversing onto AIM through a cash shell called, called Long Ships. Okay, which would just been dormant for a while, had it? Yeah, so that was our way to get onto AIM. So what revenues, what size were you when you did this? Obviously, small by the look of the smile in your face. I think we're turning over less than a million pounds. Okay. The, the angel investing you got during the journey, was it as an angel round, which is a conventional way, or was it just meet somebody, they like the look of you and what you're doing, here's a check? We sort of did it as rounds, but a lot of it was meeting people. Yeah. You know, so, so there's people that between our shareholders we, we knew already. Yeah. And... Yeah, you know how these things kind of work is if so-and-so is on board, exactly, then else. other people will come on board as well. But a lot of it was, you know, I think I met pretty much everybody that became an angel investor. Yeah. But how did you price those rounds, though? A little bit finger in the air, I think, really. You know, we were growing, we were building really good relationships. And I think one of the things that, that Gavin always said to me, which sticks, was when you're not making profit, 
your valuation can be whatever you want exactly. it to be. Exactly. And it's only when you're making profit that actually people will start to put a valuation on and you. It, it, almost, it always comes down at that point. Yes, exactly. So we played on that really. Yeah. Is you know, here's the big hockey stick yeah. future, and you know, we've got some really nice sort of models of you know, if we had a small penetration of the handset market, and this is how which we're going to be, it would be worth you know a lot of money. And so, how much did you raise when you floated? We were listed, I think it was about four million we got out of the cash shell. Okay, yeah. And then very shortly afterwards, we did a placement, yeah. not that long afterwards, with a few of the big investors. I think that was about eight million we raised then. So what's your market capitalisation, do you think, then? Shortly afterwards, in February the next year, we put a few announcements out that coincided with a few things on the market. We hit about 50 million market cap. And what proportion of the company did you have at that point? About 20%. Yeah, so you were certainly worth 10 million on paper. Yes. <laughs> we've come to that yes, in a moment. That was, that was so interesting. I have a copy of the share price and you've had some interesting journeys. Now, you left a couple of years ago. So yes. can we talk through, you know, the relationship with the market? This yep. is the first time I've had yep. somebody talking about that. And what went right and wrong yep. and before you decided to leave? Yeah, it was a complete learning curve. You know, one lasting thing I remember is I, I went into hospital to have an ankle operation and I came round and I must have so irritated everybody in my ward, but literally I was groggy on the morphine and everything else, but I was on the phone to all sorts. Oh no. Because it's a funny, funny little anecdotal story. We'd done a deployment of our technology into Guinness beer pumps, yeah. which is basically put a little NFC chip behind the harp on all the beer pumps that now rolled out across UK and Ireland that you could touch your phone onto to get content. Yes. And actually, the person who was doing the due diligence work had actually reported in, he'd, he'd gone and done his research and he'd found that they weren't working. Right. So he'd gone into a bar and actually, it's oh, major yes. panic. Yeah. So people phoning me up, what's kind of going on? This is really big alarm bells for everybody and all sorts. And then actually, we dug into it and found out that actually what they made wasn't working. It wouldn't pump out beer. <laughs> So, so the beer bit wasn't working and they're taking it out because the beer bit wasn't working but our technology it was sitting there in the yes. heart logo it wasn't working perfectly thank you very much but they'd gone in there and the barman behind them, oh it's rubbish it doesn't work <laughs> but those are the sort of things that can cause yes, a lot share of stress price drops no doubt as well yeah but you know during that period we were working hard with a number of people. We got really good relationships with Arm. Hmm. We worked really close with a spin out of theirs, Trustonic, which was doing a lot of things oh, around. Which is in Cambridge and Station Trusted Road. pin yeah, access yeah, and activity. One, yeah. And, you know, I started to spend an awful lot of my time in the States with the network operators over there and the likes of Apple and Google and, and various others about what was kind of happening with the market. But the thing that happened was we were all betting that the technology we were relying upon NFC technology, yes. when we listed and we're doing all the work with the network operators in all the other handsets, but not in Apple phones. Right. But we knew that Apple was going to have the technology in their phones. Yeah. It was just a question of when. When, yeah. And, and therefore, being a, you know, an innovative early stage business, waiting for that to happen, because yeah. usually a, a good thing. Yes. But what we didn't know was actually Apple had been working on it for quite a long time. Mm. And like Apple does, they'd probably be investing a few billion into this and the relationships they kind of got and um, you know they came up with Apple Pay yeah and the network operators and banks who we were working with looked at that and realised actually the value chain that we've built Uh. up for all the technology to be linked into our SIM card, yes, which was where all our technology was built around so the banks and network operators could have a revenue model around the SIM card we were part of that revenue model and we were facilitating that to happen 
But all of a sudden, Apple comes out and yeah. says, well, we've done this deal with the card schemes. Yeah. It's now called tokenization. And actually, you bank, just work with us and we'll set your cards up and away you go. So we listed in 2013. Yeah. So 2014 is when Apple Pay and iPhone 6 came out. And it wasn't too bad back then because, you know, it was a good news story that yes. we're right. Every phone's going to be able to do payments. And, yes. you know, it was all kind of good. And we've got a good strategy to kind of combat that mm. and work it all through. But I think, yeah, this is, this is for me, I think in my heart of hearts, I sort of knew that our business model probably wasn't right. We needed to pivot and yeah. change. How many staff were you here now? I think we're about 60, 70 staff. Right, and turning over very low millions? Turning, turning over low millions. Yeah, yeah. Um, quite low millions, actually. <laughs> and what we decided to do was to, we ended up towards the end of 2014, buying a company called Aconite. Oh, yes. Which was a business that was actually doing a lot of the back office software for right. banks and processors. Things to do with chip and pin cards and processing and transaction processing. Did you buy with shares or shares and cash? We mainly bought with shares. Okay, they might be regressing that now. Uh, yes. So we ended up doing another placement towards the end of that year yes. to buy Aconite. Yeah. So we bought that business and that then became a sort of an expanded payment division. But actually, we'd got solutions between what we were already doing yeah, and what they were good. doing. They're there was a little bit more yeah, yeah. valuable in mm. the in, in the marketplace. And unfortunately, because it was an acquisition of another business, we had to go through a bit of a cash consolidation yes. sort of exercise. So it was a bit of a painful process early the next year. Right. And then I think because it was going in a, way, in a direction that I didn't really want to go in, and I think the board perhaps wanted to go in a slightly different direction to me, I decided to step down. It's a majorly hard decision if you're CEO of your business and you know, you've been driving it for 10 years. Right. But it was definitely the right thing to do. Maybe... Yes, it was for the company or not, but it was, certainly was for you by the sound of it. Definitely. And I, and I think, you know, I like to be honest about these things, but if you think you've built a business and go through the journey that I'd been on and you had sort of pretty much not had many holidays, you've got young kids and family, mm. you've been travelling around to the States all the time and you've got all that financial stress... Yeah, with hindsight looking back, I was just so totally burnt out. Yes. And therefore, you're not able to see the woods from the trees. And that, I think, is a thing that I think, I you know why I like what you're doing, is actually it's, it's all about, you know, look after yourself. Mm. You know, look after, you think more positively about all the things to do with the business. Yes. Rather than just what you're doing for your shareholders and your, your board and exactly. your staff members and everything. You've started again, which yes. is excellent. So you're now a serial entrepreneur. You have an absolutely wonderful, rich story here. So at what point between stepping down, did and you gave yourself a rest, hopefully, and spent a bit of time with the kids? Yes. Probably the next day you started, right? Yeah, yeah so I managed to get a bit of garden leaving, which is yeah. what you do with these sort of things. Did a bit of home renovation and got back to normal. Just had a bit of a think about what to do. Yeah. Um, so there's a couple of things I decided that I wanted to do is, is I dabbled a little bit by creating a little tech hub up in Norwich. Yeah. So one of the things finished off during that garden leave period was launching a, a not-for-profit tech hub in the city of Norwich called White Space, which we now partnered with Barclays to be the first JV uh, Eagle Lab in the UK. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. And I had this idea for a brand new business called Things, which was really taking some of the relationships philosophy of what I knew, but turning it into a little bit more of a, I guess, probably more of a commoditized play. So if you think of the technologies I was kind of doing beforehand, accepting the fact that Apple and Google rule the roost mm. and there's capabilities they're kind of doing, mm. what can we do to apply the same kinds of principles but in an environment where, you know, you can do what you need to do without having to build complicated apps? 
Yes. And that's essentially what we're, we're aiming to and do. And you've heard a company called Everything, I guess, which Niall Murphy, I've, I've known for yeah, years. So, so I, yeah, so I knew so. of Niall and I, yeah. of the arm connection. Yeah. And I think there's quite a good synergy between them. So, so we're pretty much all about turning anything on the front office into something you can interact with through your smartphone. Right. So it's more the consumer experience side of things. What technology do you put into the object, whether it's a QR code, a image or a NFC chip or a Bluetooth beacon or whatever happens in the future to enable that object to be interactive and then we can link it through to experience on the phone and because of the background we've also tied it really tightly into payments yes so the ideal scenario is any object can now become a point of sale so you know your mug I could buy another mug off your mug yeah by having either an RFID chip or a TV barcode on it that's right yeah because it's crowded space this and I've seen many many plans over the years in fact I was invested in a company called Tap2 which became Proxley which was similar to a guy called Andy King but they weren't doing the payment connection so I presume what you're offering here is interconnectivity and knowing how systems work together that's right you certainly don't want to be offering the hardware because that's going to be commoditized yeah well it might be doing the short term but not the long term so fortunately I did come out with enough money to you know not pay myself for a little while and invest a little bit of money into the business yeah so actually I built the platform I knew that I needed yeah. So he spent the time and energy building app, platform, technology, supply chain relationships with those hardware suppliers to get kind of going in it. So we've got a what I call an end-to-end ecosystem, plus the payment pieces. You know, and through the relationships we've already got, we've been able to build relationships with the card schemes and so on. Plus, more importantly, people like PayPal, Stripe, WorldPay, and also a close relationship we built with the guys doing the Apple Pay thing, particularly for charity donations. Right. And how many start? A few freelancers, or have you got any full time staff? My modus operandi <laughs> of everything I've tended to do is I like a really strong, tight team. So, you know, I found the right people. You know, we've not got it's about eight people. Okay. But covering all, all the elements we need to do. So, everything we built is all designed and built and owned in house. Yes. Yes. Okay. Any funding before you went on to a crowdfunding site? So there's a lady who'd invested in Proxama before that yeah. managed to get out at the right time. She's lovely and she's come on board again for this. And then a number of sort of smaller SEIS investors who are people we know again as well have done our SEIS round. Good. So we've done that before going into the crowdfunding round. Yes, yeah, so just as a point, getting out in time, you mentioned, I noticed the share price was it's probably about a hundredth of what it was of Proxama. It's, in the a, it's an awful thing to admit with a company that, <laughs> Yeah, I was involved in. But all I can say is it wasn't like that when I stepped down as CEO. (laughs) But I think a cautionary tale for me is any business can be completely disrupted if it's in the mobile space by the big players like Apple, Google, Amazon. You know, you might think you're great, but there again, there could be something they do on their operating system or something they buy that means you're just taken out of business overnight. Uh, Or turning it the other way around, and some businesses I'm invested in are actually planning to be acquired rather than disruptive. Yeah, exactly. So much, 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 much better way to be. Yeah, exactly. So just talk briefly about the crowdfunding you're doing, because it's online. This podcast won't go out until it's closed, so it doesn't matter quite what you say now. It won't affect yeah. people investing or not investing. So how has the process been for you? So the interesting thing about it, being honest, is I didn't want to do crowdfunding. Right. Because I was winning a PLC beforehand oh before and you had a load of shareholders yeah. so you know for me there's a bigger version particularly of the journey that we went on wasn't very pleasant to say the least so i i always prefer to have the face-to-face relationship with investors but i think because of the history sometimes history is good and sometimes history is bad yeah some of the shareholders i had before wouldn't necessarily be shareholders again yeah 
and of also your, of your business, you mean of my, of my yeah, new yeah, business. Yeah, sure. And also, I think to be fair, you said the point. It's a bit of a crowded space. Mm. How do we differentiate? I mean, I know we're very, very differentiated, yes. and what we do is differentiated. But the only investors we've really picked up are people that kind of experts in the market or understand all the nuances. Right. Whereas, you know, if I call a lay investor who doesn't understand the market in enough detail, we'll kind of go and look at, you know, oh, you're using QR codes. I don't like them. Or I've heard of NFCs. That's never going to work. That's the opposite for an investor investor, actually. That's an investor actually gets in the way and doesn't invest the wrong type of time or effort or pressure on the founders. Yes. But we decided in the end that crowdfunding was the way to go because given my background, I'm probably more used to dealing with people that could put in a, a million pounds plus or larger chunks of money. Yeah. But actually, you know, the market seems to exist in the way that, you know, you, you can raise your SEIS money. There's a gap between your SEIS and your million pounds. Yes. Angels can fill that gap. Yes. Or there's different ways to do it. But I think looking at it now, I think the crowdfunding market is what's going to fill that long term. Because it seems to be that, you know, that's your, your gap filler. Now, you've chose Crowdcube, which is primarily a B2C market generally yes. because people like to use the people investing as champions of yeah. brands well you're not a b you're a b2b business we're a b2b you? business but i think there's quite a few b2b businesses on there so you know we did look at cedars and syndicate room and, and crowdcube but again a lesson learned naively is if you can do it right you can raise your seis money and get that to count towards yes. your next oh, investment really? okay Fine. so you can go into your crowdfund with you know, £150,000 you've already raised. Yes. And it's on your ticker from day one. Okay. But the, the lesson learned is if you issue share certificates to those investments, that invalidates it. Right. And I think depending on the crowdfunding network, they've got different criteria okay. about how much you need to have raised beforehand. I think the thing I found is actually, although it's a crowdfunding platform, you've really probably got to have raised half your money before you go, go oh, live. Or more sometimes. In yeah. fact, on that basis, I think it's open for another couple of weeks from the date from today, or a bit less than that. Yeah. And it said 41% last night. Yes, it's going to change quite quickly. Again, another lesson is there's a plateau of despair in there <laughs> as well, which is you, you, put, you get your initial investors, yes. you then get your mad fools who just pile in because I think it looks great. And then you get the people who download lots of documents and information and sit there waiting. So I think most businesses seem to get a plateau period where you think, oh my God, it's like tumbleweed. But then that's when you're actually getting investors who are interested but want to find a little bit more and meet up and talk and share documentation. Yeah, I noticed the forum has got some quite sophisticated questions on it, in fact, which you've answered. Yes, Fingers crossed, touch wood, we've now got a number of investors that are bigger ones that are putting money in. Yes. And then once you get over 50, 60%, that seems to be when it ticks up again and everybody else is happy to kind of jump in. And all being well, as it seems to go, is that then helps to get overfunded. So yeah. it's, I think it's just getting your thresholds right. So that'll give you a low numbers of hundreds of thousands. What are you going to do with that money? Fortunately, it's all for marketing and sales. So unlike quite a few businesses, we've actually built everything we need and our solutions deliberately sector agnostic so we can kind of apply it to different sorts of sectors. So the work really is to kind of do the work to analyse which subsectors do we think we can own or the low-hanging fruit to generate the revenue and then we can push those out there. So it's really kind of, you know, sales, marketing, bit of analysis on which markets to kind of move into and also deepening the partnership relationships we've got. So, Neil, this is really fascinating. This is two journeys. What tips have you got for entrepreneurs? First tip, again, lesson learned, is the first part of my journey. It was me. And I think many entrepreneurs are probably quite self-sufficient, jack-of-all-trades, masters of none. 
But the second part of my journey and the third part, I guess, with the new business is actually build a team and a support network is that the, the more open you are to working with others and build the best possible support network around you. That's definitely the most important tip. Right. OK, thank you. Final question is, I'm 15 years older than you. What are you going to be doing when you get to my age? Interesting. First things first is if my journey had played out slightly different with my first company, I'd be an angel investor like you. That was part of my plan. So I want to work with young startups. And then the second part of it is as I live in Norwich, I'd love to try to join that ecosystem better up with Cambridge and London and get that to be, you know, a city where, you know, there's a great startup design creative scene for businesses. And that connection, that probably relies on a good public transport connection, doesn't it? Would do, yes. So you're going to fund a railway? (laughs) Maybe not funding a railway. I think, you know, if you look at Silicon Valley, the distance between Cambridge and, you know, Norwich or Cambridge and Ipswich and, and London is, you know, the extent to Silicon Valley. So I, have, I don't know there. how many times you've been, but the traffic on that main road is appalling at the exactly. wrong time of so, day. So you could quite easily be spending a ridiculous amount of time in the car, yes. or you could be spending, you know, the same amount of time on a train or in a car, but the roads are moving a little yes. bit more smoothly. <laughs> Autonomous vehicles <laughs> roll exactly. on. Yeah. Excellent, Neil. That's been really, really interesting. I mean, who knows where this next journey's going, or maybe there's a third journey coming up after this one. Who knows? But you obviously enjoy yourself tremendously. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to another Invested Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investedinvestor.com, or via a number of podcast platforms online. Signed pre-orders for our Invested Investor book are now available on our website. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting, and insightful content from the Invested Investor. <laughs>